0: All right all right thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the bible theory uh, part five of our church series Uh, ecclesiology that's what we're going through right now the study of the church something that is uh, not very common in christianity right now in the landscape of the church it is in some circles but in the large part is really not but i would love to make ecclesiology make a comeback Um, so hopefully you're sharing this hopefully you're subscribed already to Bible Theory on Spotify um, and Anchor um, and SoundCloud so don't be afraid to go ahead and share this with everybody you know I appreciate the support and love that I have already gotten but I uh, want more you know I want more people to find out more about the church so let's go ahead and start up So this is the fifth episode. Wow, we are almost midway. Yeah, so we're almost midway of the series. And that's what I would like to do with, uh, Bible theory is to include episodes instead of single standalone episodes. I would like to have series kind of like a show, you know, like the movie, um, you know, like, you know, like movies with trilogies and stuff like that, or series. Um, so that's what I would like to do in, um, this podcast, the Bible theory, uh, just go ahead and do, um, you know, topics of, of, you know, that's, that deserves, you know, attention and, that deserves conversation and discussion and discovery you know so um, i appreciate you joining me again on this episode part five a well-ordered church and before we begin i thought it would be special to find a prayer that was written by a man named john stott that was written um, a while a while ago and let me go ahead and start this off with his prayer that he wrote let me go ahead and read it off but as a prayer. Okay, let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh God, rise up today a new generation of Christian apologists and Christian communicators. Rise up today a new generation of Christians who combine an absolute loyalty to the biblical gospel and an unwavering confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit with a deep and sensitive understanding. Of the contemporary alternatives to the gospel. Rise up today, O Lord, a new generation of Christians. Who will relate the one to the other with freshness, with authority, with relevance. And who will use their minds to reach other minds for Christ. In the glorious name of Jesus, Amen. I thought John Scott was point blank On the point there when he was praying that prayer long ago and I thought it was it would be relevant for us in our study of ecclesiology to go ahead and include that in this topic of church polity I know I know this is your favorite topic right now talking about um, Christian politics right Um, so let's go ahead and get started but before we do let's go ahead and um, say a disclosure Let me start with a disclosure. This is basically a family conversation. It's not something that makes one a Christian or not a Christian, okay? Simply because someone's a Congregationalist or Episcopalian. um, That doesn't unchurch them simply because we disagree on polity, okay? So let me quickly point out two things before we begin. Number one, that this is an inescapable issue okay because questions like how the church should be governed how how do you define church polity who should who should preach next sunday and who qualifies them and of course other practical questions like these cannot be avoided and sadly these are not even hot topics in american christianity as i already mentioned And point number two, I want to stress that this is an important issue. Usually, people who have not even given much reflection on this subject will say the following. Church government is a trivial matter, quote, unquote. Or they will say, quote, unquote, loving Christians should not pursue it. Right. Or they will say that the Bible says nothing about church politics. You see, there's a serious indifference among Christians and Christian churches, because we're, we are talking about the church here, so, you know, when Christians get together, that's called a church. So, there is a serious indifference among Christian churches who are choosing not to heed the scriptures with respect to polity and discipline, you know? So, church history, real quick, church history re- reveals several things in my study and I read several books on it so church history reveals this the best I think when leaders abuse their oaths of offices church history also reveals uh, the many disappointments in the administration of church affairs we see unity we see democratic chaos we see sexual scandals we see political upheavals We see sometimes bloodshed and even war. We see a lot of, like, dark things in church history. But thanks be to Jesus that he is the head of the church, right? Like I said in the last session, the supremacy of Christ. So, and and I'm also thankful that despite all our sins and shortcomings in church history, right, Christ has always, always and will be always, right, Be faithful to his promise, which is, I will build my church. He he has been faithful to that promise, despite our shortcomings. Nothing will stop Jesus from the historical project of church building. And let me go ahead and stress something real quick before we begin. is that Christians need to learn how to love studying church history. Let me just say that with enjoyment again. Christians need to love to learn how to love studying church history. They just need to love it uh, because it's not, you know, prevalent in our culture today to love history and to cherish it, right? And to learn from it, not to disregard it or avoid it. So, um, so how can a church be ordered, or should let me put it this way: how a church is ordered. Is indeed important, right? Whether ignored by modern believers or not. But let's just let's just say for a sake for the sake of argument, you are still saying, Hey man, I, I still don't see it, man. I, I don't see it anywhere in the Bible. Let me go ahead and give you a brief overview from the Bible that biblical authority, oversight, you know, a church that is well well ordered. Is in fact, in the Bible. First of all, let's go ahead and make our first stop in Hebrews 13, 7. That is an explicit exhortation to believers to submit to their leaders as those who watch over their souls. You cannot overlook Hebrews 13, 7 in this conversation. Second is uh, Revelation 2, 2. Christ commended the Ephesian church. For disciplining The congregation I thought that was interesting Another one is 2 John 10 and 11 John wrote that all churches Should do likewise Especially with respect To false teaching So I thought that was interesting So right there Those quick three verses um, Hebrews 13 7 Revelation 2 2 John, 2 John 10 and 11 All explicitly You know, support church politics, oversight, accountability. Right? It's an important issue, something that you cannot avoid. But let me stress real quick what um, John said in uh, in his letter Second John. Right? Um, He says that that all churches should, you know, follow suit of of the Ephesian model. For discipling and not only discipling, but disciplining the congregations, especially with respect to false teachers and false teaching. And let me just say something about that. It is a false teaching to depart from the biblical pattern of church polity. Let me say that again. It is a false teaching to depart from the biblical pattern of church polity, which leads to my first question. Who then? should have this oversight and leadership? Who? Who then should have oversight and leadership? Because this is the way I think about it. If a church is to emulate the NT, New Testament, the NT pattern, Christians simply cannot deny or ignore the importance of oversight in life, activities, and and affairs of the church. They cannot. Here's my answer. Who then should have this oversight? I think uh, choose men who are not power hungry, men who are not looking to make a name for themselves, you know, men who are uh, not given to elitism or the elite mindset, you know, because we already have too many seminarians running the church like a multi-international corporation, and we don't need any of those anymore. Another way to answer this question, I think, is the pastoral epistles, which is a standard answer, um, which is first and second Timothy and Titus. So if you want an easy answer, you know, that's easy answer. But my other answer, I think that's how I would answer it, which leads me to another question. How does Christ direct and govern his church? If it's his church. If, it, if Christ is the head of the church, which is something very important not to let go of, how does Christ direct and govern his church? Huh? I think because it's kind of obvious. Jesus is not here bodily present to make decisions and give us audibly, you know, audible guidance. He's not. Um, moreover, special revelation, SR, special revelation is not provided to us every single time we visit the sick. Or every single time we need to resolve a dispute or determine questions of doctrine, Christ is not bodily present with us to give us audible guidance or, moreover, special special revelation in these things. So Christ does give us the, you know, give us what I mean by that, the church, um, you know, guidance in scripture um to have. Not only a little bit of license, but authority to, um, you know, make decisions while he's not here bodily. And we must look. I think the answer is we must look to the scriptures. And obviously the scriptures is not like a, you know, like a recipe book per se. So we also need to look what has gone before us. Church history to find our answer. It's a tough one. And it continues to be a tough one. And if you're not ready for this conversation, I understand. Let's go ahead. Just go ahead and skip this then. But for those who are interested, stay tuned. There are a couple of other um, representations of the church of, uh, you know, church polity that I simply don't have the time to get into. But let me go ahead and point out just three constant reappearances of basic of three basic patterns that I found. Of church government throughout, you know, the Bible and in church history. One of them is uh, Episcopalianism. Two, Congregationalism. And three, Presbyterianism. And let me review them real quick for you so you won't get too confused. If you have no clue what they are, um, don't be afraid. Let's go ahead and strap on. Let's go. All right. So let's start off with Episcopalianism. So it became... You know, it's associated with it's associated really closely with um, um, Roman Catholicism in a weird way. Not really, but kind um, of it's, it's really closely related to Anglicanism more than it is to Roman Catholicism. OK, so if you say Episcopalianism is Roman Catholicism, you are mixing them together. They should not be mixed. Okay, so it's kind of like coconut oil and olive oil. They're, they're oils, but they're not the same, if that makes sense. Okay, so Episcopalian really has his roots in Anglicanism in the Church of England. It goes way back. Now, I'm not even going to go to the Church of England history for you, but a lot of this stuff kind of relates to the Church of England. Because in America, from, the Mem- from, from an American perspective, a lot of things relate to several things. One, the American Revolution, and two, the Church of England. Because that's where we come from. Those are are recent events. I know recent, right? 300 years ago, but still. Okay, so Episcopalian became a huge movement, okay? A strong movement in the United States after the American Revolutionary War. And they separated. That caused them to separate from the Church of England, a.k.a. Anglicanism in England, where the king rules everything, (laughs) you know? And the king has the power over over the church, and stuff like that, and the you know other things that I don't have the time to get into. But anyways, it was a political issue, by the way. Okay, I just wanted to point that out. Their separation there—it was a political issue. They too describe, you know, as uh, they describe themselves as Protestant, quote unquote. But they they still hold on to their Roman Catholicness, if I could say it like that. Because they still believe that the 12, the 12 apostles, especially Peter, they were, you know, especially Peter was the first bishop, aka, you know, the Pope. And by the way, there's really no distinction between the word bishop and the word elder, interchangeable, meaning the same thing, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, they really believe that there's really no difference between, um, you know, being a Protestant. And a Roman Catholic but you know they get they kind of distinguish them in a weird way um, but they hold on to the Roman Catholicism still by believing in the apostolic um, um, what is that word succession right of Peter and and supposedly they could trace it all the way back through history through like special methods and all that So that's how they still hold on to the Roman to their Roman Catholic roots in that way. Um, obviously baptizing babies and all that, but baptizing babies is not Roman Catholic. But anyways, Episcopalianism is related to Anglicans, Anglicanism, I don't even know how to say that, but anyways, but essentially it is, it is a hierarchy form of church. Think of it of a, think of it as a triangle. Okay. So the local Bishop usually is the sheriff in town, the local elder, the head elder, and they supervise the local clergy clergy is like the pastors a local priest stuff like that and very similar to the rcc the roman catholic church um like the rcc their bishops have an unbroken apostolic succession right from peter and all that stuff okay i already said that so so bishops have their own districts called dioceses. Um, When a group of dioceses get together formally, this is called a church council or a synod or synod. Um, So this part I do agree with that I believe is biblical. According to Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, right? When the group of elders got together that, that represented different churches in the book of Acts chapter 15. Anyways. That part I do believe in, okay? So don't get too creeped out when you hear the word church council. A lot of people do, but don't do that. Don't don't give in to that kind of fear. Okay, so but above the bishops, you have archbishops who outrank the local bishops, okay? And you know, currently, if you look it up, the bishop of the whole Episcopalian church is a guy named Michael Curry, the first African-American leader. of the Episcopalian church. It's from South Africa. Something like that. Anyways. Um, he's the one that gave a sermon. That was like a what? 15 minute sermon. For like the English royalty recently. Um, the wedding for Merkel and all that. Anyways. You could hear his sermon online on YouTube. It's pretty interesting. Um, so. Episcopalian basically is a hierarchy form of church governance. Okay. Did you get that? So think of. You know. Just like a huge corporation, you know, like a business. And then you got the uh, CEO, the owner on top who directs and controls everything. Kind of like Steve Jobs, you know, with Apple. So I guess you could think of it like that. Okay. So the second form is uh, congregationalism or independency. And this basically is the rule of the church by every member and the independence of every congregation from all others. So authority now begins with the many at the bottom. If you get if you get my drift. So think think about the triangle, but think about the bottom of the triangle. So an Episcopalian you know church model, you have the triangle and the power, authority starts at the tip of the triangle and works his way down to the bottom of the triangle. In Congregationalism, you have, um, you have the triangle for church gover- go- government and then it starts from the bottom, from the base of the triangle and works its way up. Okay, and Christ is at the very tip of this. So authority begins with the church members. Technically speaking, for any decision that the church or should I say congregation, right, that specific congregation could make. Every member within that specific congregation now has equal authority. So it kind of sounds like a like democracy, right? Played out in the church. Um, everybody's equal. There's no one, you know, above anybody kind of thing. But so instead of a diocese, you know, they may have, um, you know, council members or they may have ruling boards, um, stuff like that, um, which is simply is think of it as an administrative beehive. Uh, for the church you know whose decisions by the way could be overthrown by a whole congregation as a whole so if the board of elders rule and they vote for something like for example if they vote to have a swimming pool in the backyard of the church and then the 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 congregation could actually voice their opinions and say no way no way jose if are we gonna have a, a swim a swimming pool in the backyard of the church so they could override that ruling board of um, so-called elders in that church um so that's how it works you know there's a lot of variations of it but technically you know if they have any relationships with outside churches you know external associations quote unquote um to other churches they are strictly voluntarily um voluntary And those associations of other churches, they have no say within the congregation because they're congregationalists. They're independent. They want their freedom. They want their autonomy. Um, So it's chaos. Sometimes it could be chaotic because every member cannot agree. There's no agreement on everything. So it could be chaotic. Um, You know, here's a quote. So this could help you out. So James Leo Garrett Jr. Wow, that's the name. James Leo Garrett Jr., makes a case for the congregational led churches he says and i quote that form of church governance in which final human final human authority rests with the local or particular congregation when it gathers for decision making that's how he defines it basically that form of church government governance in which final human authority rests with the local or particular kind congregation when it gathers for decisions for, you know, for decisions. So basically, whenever the church gathers, that's where the final authority starts or stops. OK, that's how I understood that quote. So and, you know, congregationalism is very has his roots to a lot of different things. It, you know, it, once again, it goes back, you know, you could trace it back to, um, you know, most recently to the English Civil War Pretty much every one of these come out of the, comes out of the ever you know comes out from England kind of thing, but um, because we're here in America, so we're, we are related to England, you know. Go figure, right? So, Congregationalism has its roots with the English Civil War. So, pretty much anybody coming out of the English Civil Civil War, you know, basically was a dissenter. A supporter of the Church of England, or or people who disagreed with the church of with the Church of England, and that's how you get Congregationalism. Um, so okay, so enough of that. Um, Presbyterianism basically it's a it's a rule of church by multitude elected elders. So instead of one man at the top of the triangle, or um, the church being ruled by whole congregations. Um, You have the chosen few. Uh, Basically, typically, they are elders um, that are chosen by the people from among themselves. You know, these men are, you know, technically um, educated, you know, high up there in terms of they could speak Greek. They could read Greek. They could spell Greek. You know, they're pretty educated. Um, So they are examined first and they are confirmed by the present board of elders or AKA the session, um, who are in, in each congregation of a Presbyterian church. So if you pass by a a Presbyterian church, just know that that church has a, has a session, a group of chosen elders. Okay. And each, each session is a participant of a regional body of elders called the presbytery kind of like a district kind of like a diocese essentially all congregations within the presbyterian churches are connected with each other under the presbytery so like the district of um you know like for example the let's take the state of arizona so arizona has so many cities tucson phoenix flagstaff williams yuma parker like tons of areas the court side so each city has a church each city has um a session you know within those churches right let's just say there's one presbyterian church for the sake of argument in every city of arizona and i don't know how many cities there are in arizona but let's just say there's 10 okay so that means there's 10 sessions so within 10 sessions they represent one presbytery one district or they could divide it up into two parts of the states in half. So divide, you know, 10 into half. So be five. So be two parts of Presbytery. So the uh, So Arizona could be divided into two Presbyteries. Right. So, you know, and that's how it kind of plays out throughout the United States. It gets complicated depending on how big the Presbytery is in the state and within the region. Anyway, sometimes they group the, you know, the region or the states together in groups and call that a region. Like the West Coast is a region of a presbytery. You get it? Okay, so all presbyteries are connected under, you know, the, the, you know, the authority or the jurisdiction of the GA, which is the General Assembly. And basically, the GA is uh, is is basically where it's basically where all the elders of all presbyteries and all sessions basically go and get together and meet. So it's kind of like a church council, kind of like a senate, kind of like a huge meeting, a huge version of a of a session meeting, a huge version of us of a presbytery meeting. It happens once a year, or every so often, or sometimes on a special occasion. But it's basically a system of courts and committees uh, for the purposes of appeal and redress, um, you know, to review errors that other, you know, subordinate, you know, bodies have made. Um, so it's basically all, all the debating happens where where all the politics. So think of it as the Senate. <laughs> and, it, and it feels a whole like uh, it feels like the Senate, really, because it has the moderator, it has all kinds of stuff. Um, so, you know, you know, church, you know, Christ directs his church through the scriptures. Primarily, we understand this, but to leave it there would be chaotic because then you will have a non-ordered church of house. The house of the Lord would be disorganized, dysfunctional. It would be chaotic. Everybody would be like showing up and be like, okay, who wants to preach today? Okay. You in the green shirt, let's go, you know, or, you know, there's no order, to things there's no order to things so christ directs his church through the scriptures of course but you know his own self-revelation and authority an authoritative guidance is also included in the scriptures okay so let me offer here a brief summary of you know the biblical material which we already went over in a more relevant in a more relevant way you know to determine how Christ. Would have his church governed. And the Bible of course is not silent on this matter. So number one. There's no distinction between elders quote unquote and bishops quote unquote. Because the words is. These basically represent the same office in order. Okay. So Titus uh, chapter 1 by um, verses 5 to 7. Acts 20 um, verse 17 and then 28. You know, bishop, the word bishop, don't get scared from that word. It basically is the same office as elder. Words are interchangeable, you know what I mean? Point number two, you know, each congregation and center of leadership is to have a plurality of elders. Obviously, if you read Acts uh, 14 23, 2017, 20, Philippians 1 1, there's no such thing as a one man ban, okay? There's no such thing as a one man rule, basically. Um, three, um, you know, point three i think these elders basically they they have the oversight of the church we we, we see this in scripture acts 20 28 uh first peter 5 2 and 3 you know they have oversight of the church and are thus responsible to rule their congregation first timothy 3 5 5 17 first Thessalonians 5 12 hebrews 13 17 seven uh, and 17 and 24 they judge among the brothers and in contrast to all the members they do the rebuking they uh you know christ calls them to use what he said the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose right whatever they want to bind and loose on heaven and on earth these keys quote unquote um being preaching the gospel administrating the sacraments and exercising of church discipline uh point four um elders are assisted in their ministry by deacons or servants who give attention to the ministry of mercy we see this in acts chapter six verses one through six uh, first timothy three and eight through 13 and point five the office bearers in the church are nominated and elected by the members of the congregation. Um, Acts chapter 6 verses 5 and 6, but they also must be examined, confirmed, ordained, and presented by other elders. They can't just show up one day and say, hey, I'm going to be the pastor of this church from now on. I'm the new sheriff in town. That doesn't happen. That doesn't cut it. Um, and lastly, point six, members of, of the church, they have rights. They have rights to appeal and, and dispute, it, uh, you know, they have rights to appeal basically um disputed matters um matters in the congregation to their elders for resolution so whenever there's a dispute going on the members have basically um equal access to the leaders of the church you know no leader should shut off the members no leader should close the door on the members and make it difficult to bring up uh, a dispute you know, for resolution, all church members should have equal access to their leaders very easily. First of all, they should know who they are. They should know where they live. They shouldn't have them on speed dial. They should have their email and more so they should have been over, you know, their house several dozen times. So they should have a relationship for in order for this to happen. Um So and, and you know, and if the dispute is with local elders, with those local elders, you know. To appeal to the regional govern, gover, governing body to the presbytery should not also be an obstacle. So, like, if, if they don't listen to you, if, if if the local church is not handling the dispute correctly, the members should have the ability and easy access to go up one them, right? To go up to the district manager, quote-unquote, to the presbytery, to other... Um, con- um, connected elders in that church so go outside of the source go go to other elders you know who are not part of that church but like in other churches but still called sister churches kind of like the presbytery anyways you know because they they might have other authority that that local church does not have to bring that resolution to close so anyways um, those are some of my thoughts in my opinion i think the spectacular quote-unquote mega churches of our day they rarely govern in the ways I just mentioned. Um, so, you know, they, they do a lot of things um, where they do, um, you know, compartmentalizing the church. They, they don't practice church discipline. Um, they usually end up with the one-man band show um, with the man on top controlling everything. And they usually, and then sometimes other churches on the other side of the spectrum, like independent congregations, um, they tend to, you know, not to not do any of the office bearing type stuff, you know, not really have their members elect elders. And they usually just neglect the members altogether. By you know, there, sometimes it's a huge mess um, in, in independent churches. It's not it's not even funny. But I think is it is essential of Presbyterian governments um, found today in various re- reformed churches that we find Um, That they must have a biblical approach to things. And, and, you know, and I think it's the best expression found in the Bible is the Presbyterian form of government, which really creates the checks and balances um, in the church, in church government. So anyways, I'll leave it there. I got to go. Hopefully you found this conversation enlightening, um, you know, inviting and um, definitely Uh, nourishing um, in your conversations of um, the church of church government. Okay, so um, anyways, let's go ahead and end this with the word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your church. Thank you for being the head of the church. Thank you for showing us some of the patterns found in scripture and throughout church history. We pray that we would be, um, um, you know, Christians that would submit to our elders. Uh, We pray that we would be helpful to them that we would also remember them in our prayers and that we would be encouraging to them and in a a delight to be their little sheep and then they would be our shepherd and um, give us this mindset, give us this heart for um, submission to our leaders um, and help us to not be um, dissenters and um, isolationists and and, uh, people who don't want to see it in the Bible, but Um, Help us to obey the exhortations found in the Bible about oversight. Um, In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, stay tuned to the next episode.